This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, May 27th, 2019. I'm Caleb Brown. The Wealth Explosion, the new book by Stephen Davies, details many of the theories that try to explain why the world began to develop so rapidly two and a half centuries ago. More importantly, he details cases where a wealth explosion began but stopped. He argues these historical cases and the very nature and causes of wealth expansion have relevance for policy today. The story of the 20th century and continuing into the 21st century uh, that is continues to be so unsung is the dramatic and sustained decline in the grinding poverty that people face around the world, both in absolute numbers and in percentage terms. So that's yes. a real decline. It's not just we're slowing the rate of growth of humans who have to live mm-hmm. in this grinding poverty. And that's because of the hockey stick, our sustained uh, technological development and innovation that has allowed uh, so many people over time to be lifted out of poverty and to live uh, fuller lives. Yes. And one of the questions that you raise in in your book, because there was this moment in time, and I, I want you to describe that moment in time and what yeah. happened, but the fact that there were uh, these periods that seemed to have gotten started of this yeah. rapid innovation, this rapid increase in in general wealth that's that's being relatively mm. more widely spread, uh, is that they stopped. Yes. <laughs> so, what was the change that we saw? Yeah. Uh, about 250 years ago, that has since dramatically changed the world. Well, the way to understand what happened 250 years ago, in a way, is to think about well, why had this not happened before? And as you say, there had been several episodes in the past where uh, innovation had begun to get going. You began to get quite rapid economic growth. You began to get a lot of intellectual, cultural dynamism as well as economic dynamism. But these hadn't lasted. And I think there are two broad reasons. The first is that all of our ancestral societies had a whole series of institutions, laws, practices, norms, which worked to make people safer, to protect them against contingency, but which also had the effect of stopping innovation. And this makes sense because most innovations do not work. And if you're living one bad harvest away from starving, you do not want to have one of your farmer people using up half his seeds on an experimental bit of farming. He might lose it all, you know. Uh, and that could be the difference. Uh, the other thing, though, is the role of elites, of ruling classes, the people who control not the means of production, but the means of predation. And these people have a very powerful incentive to discourage innovation for obvious reasons. If you're at the top of the pile, why do you want things to change? Now, what happened in the 18th century in parts of Northwest Europe, the American colonies as they then were and elsewhere, is that elites in response to a major demographic crisis, the world population has doubled by the end of the 18th century, and it's beginning to press up against uh, pretty severe Malthusian limits. In response to this crisis, they react by deliberately sweeping away a lot of those old institutions uh, and by uh, encouraging innovation, scientific innovation through things like the Royal Society, uh, economic innovation. They encourage things like canal companies, the early railroads, development of new technology. And this is quite contrary to what any elite had done in any previous period of civilization. Why do they do that? They do it because they're engaged in intense competition with each other. And if you are a country that 
uh, encourages innovation, the result is more wealth, which from the point of view of the rulers means not just bigger and fancier palaces, but more sinews of war. And if you don't have it, you, you end up like Poland. You disappear and get gobbled up by your neighbors. And so what happens is that there's a kind of deliberate shift at the end of the 18th century to try and respond to this crisis by encouraging innovation. What you also find at the same time is that you get the emergence of large social groups who favor the innovation and an ideology, uh, liberalism broadly defined, which supports the changes that not only uh, flow out of the innovation and the rise of what we would call capitalism, but keep it going. And so between roughly 1770 and 1860, there's an enormous political conflict uh, right across Europe and here in North America between one sort of coalition, which is broadly liberal with a small L, classical liberal, which supports the innovation, supports the changes, supports getting rid of institutions like slavery, which had been around for thousands of years. And on the other side is a counter-coalition, some aristocrats, most of the peasantry, a lot of artisan workers, who favor keeping things the same way, preserving guild restrictions, uh, stopping the spread of free thought and free thinking, and they lose the argument. And so that's one of the main reasons why, by 1860, it's pretty clear uh, that the wave of innovation this time is going to be sustained. So uh, that's the way, that's the the current story. Yeah. And it, but in these previous waves, yeah. um, I remember uh, many years ago hearing you talk about the Sung dynasty. Yeah. Indeed. And I have a whole chapter on the Sung and their fate in, in the book that you referred to. That's the greatest example we have of one of these outbursts of innovation and dynamic growth before the modern world itself. And I can remember from your speech many years ago, uh, you double entry bookkeeping. Yes, that was one of the things, one of many things invented. The, the fiat, fiat money. Yes, um, f uh, flying money, as the Chinese called it, paper money. And also uh, enormous ships, uh, merchant junks, which uh, had crews of up to 400 people and were several hundred feet long. They found one in the Pearl River Delta a couple of years ago, which was taking a, a cargo of uh, silk, ironware, and porcelain to Java. It went down in a typhoon. And the sheer size of this ship, which you, they brought up from the seabed, is amazing. Biggest ships built anywhere in the world before the 19th century, in fact. So Song China is this incredibly dynamic, innovative society. By the time you get to the mid-13th century, they're at the same level of technical and economic development as 18th century Europe. And at that point, the Mongols come along. <laughs> All right. So... What were some of the political norms that it, existed it, at the time of the Song? In the Song China? Well, they have the rule of law. Uh, they give the peasantry complete private property in their land and crucially the right to alienate the land, uh, which means that you get the emergence of large commercial farms. You get a rapid growth of urbanization. You get a form of constitutional government, which the emperor is no longer an arbitrary ruler. He rules with and through a council of ministers headed by a prime minister, which is both a deliberative body and an executive body, combines executive and legislative functions. Basically. So the bureaucracy has been slowed. Yes, indeed. And also reformed to make it much more merit, truly meritocratic. Uh, as you know, probably know, the, to become a Mandarin in China, you had to pass an exam. And the system, the song reformed the exam system so that instead of just having to write essays on the classics, you also had to solve practical problems in governance, like how would you deal with uh, a major economic crisis, for example. So uh, that was not the last 
yeah. burst of uh, innovation? Where were some of the other ones that that you found to to be notable for? what existed at the time and why things should have taken off more than they did. Yeah, well, one classic example is under the Abbasid caliphs in the Middle East in the 7th and 8th century, particularly the 8th century. Uh, another one is in the lands around the Mediterranean in the Roman Empire in the 2nd century. Those are both good examples. Another one is the Gupta Empire in India uh, in the 3rd and 4th centuries. The These all come to an end for different reasons, uh, partly cultural reactions. This is what happens in the Abbasid case. There's an enormous intellectual debate, uh, and the rationalists, the Mutazilites, lose out to the Asherites, the uh, obscurantist orthodox. Uh, and at the same time, the elite, the Abbasid family, uh, turn against the dynamic innovation, and that's all clamped down on. Similarly, in the case of the Roman Empire, you get a political collapse, and that brings about, in the third century, and that, along with other things like severe worsening of the planet's climate, brings about an end to the very dynamic economy of the second century Roman Empire. So there are various things that happened here. The most the dramatic case, though, is the Chinese one, because what happens there is that in 1368, a new Chinese dynasty comes to power, the Ming. And the Ming emperors, particularly the first one, the Hongwu Emperor, deliberately, systematically stop innovation quite in a quite self-aware way. They actually abolish entire technologies, uh, like most famously at the end of the 15th century, after having sent huge fleets out over the Indian Ocean, they get rid of the technology of building ocean-building ships. Uh, they completely outlaw it and scrap all the blueprints and uh, either kill or make mute the people who knew how to do this. Uh, so there's a quite deliberate rolling back of the tide of innovation and dynamism. It's the most dramatic example, but this is the more general phenomenon. The relevance to today is that despite this dramatic uh, explosion of wealth, the wealth explosion is the name of the book, um, there are efforts today to, you know, I, I think naively take for granted mm. The fact that we have all this tremendous wealth that the the global economy produces, you know, this wealth that global poverty is just going to continue to decline. But of course, you don't see it that way. No, uh, we we could we should not assume that this is inevitable or take it for granted. In fact, one of the messages is. If you are alive today, you are incredibly lucky, and you should A, be very thankful for that, uh, and that you weren't born several hundred years ago, and B, realize why you're so lucky and how it could be lost, because it's not inevitable. There are two things that could happen. There have always been people who think that the modern world is actually a bad deal, from Rousseau onwards. Rousseau thought we'd be much better off living as solitary savages, basically, crazy guy. Uh, but there are people who, while not perhaps as mad as that, still think that we should abandon modernity and go back to a kind of pre-modern world. People who would like to do to us globally what the Ming did in the uh, 13th and 14th centuries. And that's really what you might call the radical green, radical environmentalist approach. Uh, stop technology, impose the precautionary principle, which means don't innovate, basically unless you're absolutely certain there are going to be no adverse consequences, whatever, whoever is that certain. So that's one possibility. I think that's actually low on the list of threats because it's un it would have to take effect at a global level. Now, it 
which I think is very unlikely. However, the more serious threat is that we will do this inadvertently. As you sort of intimated, it may be that we just take the wealth for granted and we think, well, what we need to do is to, for example, politicize the allocation of resources in order to greenify the economy, for example, or to meet some other kind of large environmental or social goal, collective goal, rather than leaving it up to individual economic actors, investors and others to decide where things should go and what should be done. And when you combine that with the global regulatory system that has gradually come into being since the end of World War II, if we're not very careful, what we could do is recreate the incentives that faced uh, our ancestors to stop change. We will no longer have a system where uh, the people with power actually have an incentive to encourage change. We could go back to the situation that applied up until the 18th century, where People with wealth, people with power actually have a strong incentive to put a lid on change. And we that would not be intended, unlike the first case, but it would have the same effect. One of the quest- other questions I, uh, I look at at the end of the book is the question of how to understand our own historical location. And the argument I make there is that, in a very real sense, we are no longer living in Western civilization. Uh, my view is that although the modern world appears first in Western civilization, it has actually replaced it. And that what we're living in now is a new civilization, which is in its early stages of development, really. It may turn out to be a single global civilization, or it may be that we actually have several modern civilizations, each of which draws upon but is different from one of the older ones. Uh, But I think that the classical Western civilization, the Christian uh, civilization with an inheritance from Greco-Roman civilization, that really died or ceased to be a living entity around the period between roughly the 1890s and the 1950s. And we still have a memory of it, and we still have the legacy to draw upon, but I think we're actually living in a new civilization. Uh, And one of the things that means is that modernization is not the same thing as westernization. Uh, People often conflate the two, and I think that's clearly not the case. I mean, the, the, the evidence of places like Japan at an earlier date, or China now, shows that it's not the case. Uh, But it's less and less true with every passing year. Stephen Davies is author of The Wealth Explosion, available now. Davies is also head of education at the Institute of Economic Affairs. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you get your podcasts, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.